Gabriel Alvarado, but I go by Gabby. That's how most people know me. Uh, I'm a Brooke and modern food player. I'm currently living in Detroit, Michigan. I relocated over the summer to start my job at the Sphinx organization. And um, I am originally from Venezuela and I grew up in El Sistema. Um, which we can talk a little bit more later, um, but I've been pretty much doing music since I was very young, five years old, and um, and I'm here trying now to do a little bit more on the arts administration part of music. That's awesome. I'm so happy you're here. Um, and yeah, like, let's start the conversation by talking about your early life and your early experiences um, with music a little bit. So you had mentioned that you kind of started with music when you were five. Um, so what did that look like for you? Like, what were your early influences growing up? Yeah, so in uh, my home country, um, uh, the music system that they have um, started off pretty young. And a lot of people actually start with string instruments, but um, I was not really keen to the scratchy sound of beginner violin. <laughs> So at the beginning, I actually, um, I took most of our core classes, which were, you know, solvent and uh, music theory, music history, um, and so on. And I did choirs from a very um, young age um, and being part of the national um, choir in my home country, which I tour with um, for a really long time, all the way until I came to the U.S. Um, And I actually started playing the flute when I was 11 because I have very short hands. Um, and mm-hmm. um, my fingers couldn't really um, get to the, all the keys and I couldn't hold the instrument. So I had to wait until I was, uh, I was like, tall and old enough to be able to play the instrument. Um, but um, I, I think when I was young, we just, we, we had a lot of classes that we took. Um, our education was um, very integral. So we had like a lot going on besides rehearsals, which I think mm-hmm. was really nice. Um, it gave us um, a broader view of what music was like. Um, so I would go most of the days to the conservatory in my hometown um, for either any class of rehearsals in the afternoons. And then um, as being part of a, a touring choir, like most of my weekends were occupied with either rehearsals or being in a different city. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. I'm, I'm always curious just being a music educator myself and how different countries structure their music education. Um, and I, I find that really interesting that you got to experience a music conservatory life at a young age. And, you know, you were saying that you took, you know, theory classes and music history classes and that stuff. That's not something that most students in the United States really experience until they're maybe in high school, if their school happens to offer that. It's very much like ensemble based from the very beginning. And that is part of their school day um, in most schools. So I find that interesting, the differences there, but I could see that benefit of getting that holistic music experience and really understanding how music is structured while also playing the instrument. I think that's an amazing benefit that you had growing up. Yeah, I think it also, um, at least for me, it, it helped me see um, music as a whole. And um, when it came time to decide what I wanted to do for my career, I think it was it was very influential because I could see that it was more than just a competition or it was more than just 
um, a concert or being part of the ensemble, it, there was a lot more to to the to the field itself. Um, I think that was like really helpful um, growing up because it was like if I was going to school twice a day, if that makes any sense, because I had all the subjects in the morning when I was going to my regular school, but in the conservatory, you still had all these other classes that you were taking um, in addition to it. Um, for for like a national choir, like you were required to read music. So like the level of understanding of music was pretty high at a very young age, which I think um, I see was very different, especially when I first came to the U.S. and I was doing um, a lot of my teaching practicum in, um, in high schools and middle schools. Um, I saw how that was very different from the students and how that influenced um, their learning and how they saw music. Yeah, that's so true. Uh, for sure. And you you had started to mention how all of those experiences at a young age kind of influenced you um, towards your professional life. And you are not only a modern flutist, but you also specialize in Baroque music as well. And when, you know, you sit there and you think about modern classical music and Baroque music, that feels like to most people, when you hear about that, that feels like two opposite sides of the spectrum, right? Um, so can you talk a little bit about your passion for both, you know, modern classical flute music and also Baroque music as well? Yeah, of course. So um, the funny thing is, so I, I got into early music almost by by chance when I moved to, um, to Texas to do my doctorate. Um, the University of Texas, the way that they structure their programs, you have to have some sort of, they call it related field, but it's more like a minor, you specialize on something. Um, and at the moment that I got there to do um, my doctorate, there were not a lot of um, specializations that I was interested in because I had done many of those already in my career before getting into that part of my education. Um, the only thing that I had not done before was early music, even though I lived in Boston for nine years before that. And that's like, I would say, you know, um, such a um, important city representative of early music in the U.S. Um, so my teacher was just trying to like, at that time, she was trying to help me out, figure out, because it was the end of my first year and you had to decide what your related field was. And she was like, why don't you go try out this thing and and figure out if you like it or not, and we'll go from there. And so I made an appointment with the chair of the early music department to to see what the program was like, what the requirements were, and what would entail for me to um, go into that route. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, he handed me a Baroque flute and was like, the rehearsal starts in five minutes, we'll see you there. <laughs> And that's kind of like how I went. And I mean, like if you if you know anything about um, early instruments, it they the way that you play is so different than how you play modern instruments. It's yeah. like you're relearning a completely new instrument. And all of a sudden, there I was in a in a orchestra rehearsal, not even knowing fingerings of how to play. So it was it was a pretty interesting beginning. Um, but I would say the more I did it, and the experiences I had really helped me. Um, see and, and inform my modern playing so much that I just decided to continue doing. Um, when I went into my doctorate, one of my 
primary goals was to be able to to learn the things that I didn't learn before and because I did so much conservatory training um, a lot of what I learned was you know your your standard classical repertoire mm-hmm. and um, I wanted to to stay away from that and like learned about all those underrepresented minority composers that we normally don't program don't play don't learn about and most of my research and programming throughout the six years that I did my doctorate was specifically on that so that I could um, kind of fill out that gap that I I had in my education Mm. and when it came to baroque and classical repertoire there was so much that I was missing you know like I knew about Bach and like maybe some of the major French composers for flute but that was about it you know some Telemann and Handel but there's not even that much Handel repertoire for flute specifically is more um flute as an accompaniment for for like arias and and orchestra repertoire mm-hmm. so for me it was um so eye-opening and it also gave me an opportunity to develop skills on something that I was very interested about um, and that's how I started one of my ensembles, on um, Amaranti Ensemble. Most of what we program specifically underrepresented um, composers who we don't learn about in school. So it, it requires a lot of research for sure, but it's been really um, rewarding so far. That's awesome. And yeah, let's talk about your chamber group a little bit. Um, you mentioned they it commissions new works for Baroque flute. Um, and I know it also includes harpsichord as well. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, um, what kind of inspired you to create this chamber group and a little bit more about what you program? Um, so it started maybe the second year that I was learning Baroque flute. Um, um, it it kind of just started, you know, like that one thing um, where you hang out with the people that you like most in school <laughs> and start playing and doing sight reading and um we started realizing that um, at the time there was um, four of us actually um, that were going at, uh, to the same school and we started realizing that there was a lot of, again, repertoire that we didn't know of but that we were really interested about um, and we wanted to do more than just sight reading jam sessions, right? Mm-hmm. We wanted to make it more formal. Um one of us was graduating that year, so um, he kind of just um, did it for the fun of it. And then three of us decided to make it a more formal um, ensemble. And um, we started um, with the mission of uplifting those underrepresented composers. Um, it started with um, violin, cello, um flute and harpsichord and then it morphed into two flutes and harpsichord and then right now is um only uh, me and my harpsichord is and we are not only doing early works but um we have been commissioning works by female composers or female identifying composers for baroque flute and harpsichord and um one of our goals is to be able to have um enough of the pieces to have an album for next year. That's awesome. That's so great. Good for you. And I think it's really interesting that you're taking 
an instrument that is a period instrument, right? Like Baroque flute, harpsichord, but you're encouraging the commission of new music along with that instrumentation. I think it's a really cool um, sort of collaboration between those two ideas. You know, you're taking period instruments with this idea of creating new music as well. And I think that's really awesome um, that you're doing that. And it's, it's really innovative as well, for sure. Yeah, well, we thought um, that I'd say the harpsichord is that playing harpsichord. Um, this is the funny story. He loves video games, and he actually <laughs> learned about the harpsichord because one of the scenes in one of the games that he was um, really into had harpsichord as a, in the background, and mm-hmm. that's how he got into learning about the different um, period keyboard instruments. Um, but then we realized that actually early instruments are used in a lot of soundtracks and video game music, the more we teach research about. Um, so we tried to find a way to, you know, bring that um, aspect of, of pure instruments that most people don't know unless you do research and you're a nerd and you're a geek about it, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and then um, make it the essence of what we do now, which is we still want our repertoire to be um, an opportunity for for those composers that normally are not learned at school or not are not programmed in the big halls. And, and most of our concerts are very intimate. We go to libraries, we go to schools, we um, we go to coffee shops or people's houses. We try to make um, our, our concerts a little bit more about the audience. And most of the time, the audience wants to hear things that they understand or that they are familiar or somehow relate to, right? So somebody's gonna relate to um, more to video game music than some sort of like back tune that they had no idea what really is. So it's like um, we we try to bring that into what we are commissioning, and um, this specific commission um, project ha- um, has a topic, but we're trying to, as I said incorporate everything that we're passionate about so that we can continue um, uplifting other um, repertoire that is not normally found in in any of the stages. That's awesome. And speaking of advocating for underrepresented folks in music, you are also the manager of community and patron engagement for the Sphinx organization. Um, some of our folks that we've had on the show before have been involved in the Sphinx organization or have benefited in some way from, you know, assistance or scholarship money or things like that. So can you talk a little bit about what the Sphinx organization is for those folks who may not know what Sphinx is? And then can you talk a little bit about your role in Sphinx? Of course. So um, the best way that I can always describe what we do is um, we are a nonprofit organization funding musicians of color, right? I mean, there's more to it, but mm-hmm. once you only have sometimes 30 seconds to get people's attention, um, that's, <laughs> that's the best way to summarize what we do. But really, there's a whole pipeline where we start with music education in um, the public schools in Detroit and Flint, just bringing the violins and cellos and the first instrumented for the first time. And all of that is, of course, funded. It's all for free. We go to the schools, we bring the teachers, we give the students lessons. Um, and it goes from there to um, our competitions. We have now an 
or like a national alliance of um, audition um, for um, for all the orchestras where we're trying to make sure that every orchestra has enough representation of people of color and their auditions for that. Um, there are over a hundred orchestras that are now in partnership with us that are um, every time that we have an audition on a competition or an uh, audition intensive, they ha they are committed to select people that participate in, in this intensive to be either um, going into whatever step comes into next audition or to hire them for a one-year um, commitment contract. So, um, and then we have our leadership program where we have two-year training program for arts administrators, right? Whether you are already in some sort of um, arts administration position or you're interested and need all of your training of how, how do you fundraise? <laughs> how do you, how do you um, lead an organization, right? And they have a two-year program also all funded. And we have, of course, all of our grants um, that go from anyone who is Black or Latinx to more specific for those grants who are specifically for um, Sphinx alum. So um, we, we're trying to really um, find the needs of the community and then fulfill that need as, um, as we continue to grow. And we go into our 25th anniversary next year. Now, my role, <laughs> I do, um, I do, some of it is communication so all the marketing social media press releases that you see out there um that goes under my portfolio and then um on the fundraising part i am dealing with the smaller donors so those people who might be interested in the organization but they don't know enough so i take the time to educate them about the organization and make sure that they know that whatever they're investing is is going to a really good cost um, so it's a lot of um, audience engagement of what I do and um, making sure that um, whoever gets, is in, in touch somehow with the organization knows enough that wants to um, support us, but also be an ambassador of what we do. That's awesome. And yeah, the Sphinx organization is one of the top resources that I share with folks that are looking for help or looking for community to connect with um, or things like that when it comes to providing more equitable resources for folks. So I think that's awesome that you are a part of that organization and all of the wonderful work that it does because it does some incredible work. I know uh, quite a few friends that have had assistance in helping pay for traveling for auditions um, and things like that, that really have benefited from those resources. So it's really incredible that that organization exists. Um, and I hope it continues to grow and I hope it becomes more popular and more people um, are aware of the organization and can spread the word as well. Yeah, that's our goal. We're hoping to be able to continue growing, but also just to continue helping the musicians that just um, need it so much and um, haven't been able to have the same opportunities that everyone else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you are also involved in a few more organizations um, as well. So you're an arts advocate um, as the co-chair of global initiatives uh, of the International Alliance for Women in Music. 
Um, and you're also on the Advisory Council of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the University of North Texas. Um, so can you talk a little bit about your involvement in both of those organizations and maybe some goals that you may have um, as part of your career involved in those organizations? Yeah, of course. Um, so I would say um, I can start first with uh, my involvement in the advisory council at the University of Texas, specifically for the College of Music. Um, mm -hmm. I um, represent many, um, I would say with all my identities, I represent a lot of communities, um, not only as a um, Hispanic woman, but um, member of the LGBTQIA community. I also um, deal with multiple disabilities and Throughout my time during my doctorate, um, I had to navigate the dealing with all of that and being in a very large institution. Um, and I I found that there were so many um, obstacles for you to receive help or be heard. Um, and so I use um, my experience to to be able to advocate for those who normally. Um, well, first of all, don't have the resources because they don't know enough people or they don't know who to contact or sometimes they're not. Um, I call myself sometimes stubborn enough <laughs> to continue going and fighting for what you need. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I was um, asked to become a member of the council about a year and a half ago. Um, and my work has specifically been... Um, helping with um the representation of like all of my identities and how um we can become more visible but also to have enough help as we go through any of the programs um before going to the university of north texas i went to smaller schools i mean conservatories you know for the most part are very small schools and all of a sudden i found myself in in a university of 45,000 students with 3,000 students doing music specifically. So mm -hmm. the, it, it becomes a little bit harder to navigate that kind of um, environment. Um, and sometimes there are things that aren't just not set in place to help people. So um, the work that we did last year, um, we called it about belonging and it was a whole series of um giving whether it was the students um alumni staff um faculty the opportunity to show through their work how what belonging meant to them in music and in the university and, and going from there making certain changes in the programming and um, in the um, asking the university for certain changes like making sure that every um, application that we have gives the opportunity for people to talk about or select their gender identity and um, and their race and, and all of that. So like just making a few changes um, that I hope become a little um, greater as um, my work with them continues. But just being sure that I 
bring visibility to those who normally don't have it and don't have the opportunity to speak or just don't have the 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 resources around them to um to get to the to the right people or um to the right offices sometimes I said um to to be able to get help and that's something that I um, hope to continue doing um in my time as a member of the council and the council usually works with the dean um of of the College of Music and then from there with the entire um faculty and stuff that's awesome yeah and then at the um, International um, Alliance for Women in Music, um, the first year I did a lot of marketing um, because that's most of what I do nowadays. Um, but then this year I will be um, the co-chair for the Global Initiative. Um, again, we want to be able to um, show a lot, give a space for representation, um, not only in age, but also um as most diverse membership and opportunities for for women in music and um, just making sure that there's always somebody representing not only our organization but that we're helping other organizations that are supporting women in music um, whether it comes from like research or if it is um, we have lots of competitions um, that support women, um, whether it comes with compositions or um, research. And um, we have a lot of um, grants um, funding education programs for women as well. Um, so that's a little bit of what I'm doing with the International Alliance of Women in Music. That's awesome. and. I love that, you know, not only are you being an outspoken advocate for all of these issues of representation and um, advocating for underrepresented folks in our field, but you're also doing something about it. You know, you're getting involved, you're serving on these boards, um, you're trying to find a way to make things better um, at places like um, University of North Texas, and you're really doing that work. And I so appreciate um, all the work that you're doing to help those people and to, you know, promote more new music by these communities. Yes, I mean, I'm doing what I can for now. And I, um, I think it's um, one of my goals to continue making a difference um, in whatever I am. And I think I I always try to bring this to m- uh, many of my students or the people that I work with. Um, serving in, in boards sometimes can take a lot of time. I'm not going to lie. It takes a lot of effort and, and work. Mm-hmm. But um, the work that you do is uh, in, important when you are part of um, these um, bodies because they become authority and that's how you can make change. You can... You can complain a lot about what's happening, but if you don't take action, uh, then what are we really doing for the field, right? And mm-hmm. um, and I think, like I was saying before, because I represent so many communities, um, I I want to make sure that I can make the future better for for those that are coming after me. Um, I don't necessarily want everyone to have to struggle as much as I have if I can't make a change. If I am in a position of what I will say now, power, right? Like every time that I found myself in a position of power, 
um, would I have the privilege to help? Why not take that opportunity to do it? And um, as time allows it, I will continue to um, do this work with the right organizations, of course, organizations that I think um, reflect my values and um, what I want this music world to be, the classical music world especially, to be more inclusive, more um, diverse, so, so that we can all feel like we belong. Yeah, absolutely. That's beautiful. I want to thank you so much uh, for giving me your time today, sharing your projects and all the wonderful work that you're doing. Please keep up the good work. Keep fighting the good fight. I think it's awesome. Everything that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great talking to you today.